People thought that we just did it as a hobby. And by then it was a multi-million pound business, but it didn't start off as that. It started off, it was a lot of graft, long days, a belief from Simon Weir and the rest of the team. And, and we wrote everything. Even going back when I first joined the police in, in 2001, I'd still get piss taken out of me riding into work uh, at the CID <laughs> land. We go, oh, fucking hell, Matt. I mean, they were great, but like, hey, Matt, oh, you're looking great in your light craze, that a banana and, you know, in your shorts. Oh, yeah, all right, lads. Three years later, they're coming up to my office at the public protection unit, the CID lads, and saying, so, Matt, can you get me a discount on a bike? Or can I buy, have you got any spare kit I want to buy? Probably had about eight pints. That was just ridiculous. Anyway, started the next day dehydrated, hungover, and somehow, I don't know how we did it, but me and Mike got in the breakaway. We had the British team pursuit squad, so Chris Newton, Paul Manning, and a few others, Halesy, chasing, because they'd missed it, and they didn't catch us, and I won it overall. <laughs> but I was absolutely, for the first two hours, absolutely hanging. Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 575 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today again, I wanna pull an episode from The Vault and it's with Mr. Matt Stevens. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. This week, we're onboarding a lot of new listeners into the Roadman Cycling world. And as a little bit of a treat, I wanted to pull out some of my favorite conversations, some of the most impactful conversations that I've had over the previous 570 podcasts. Today's episode is one from not too long ago with Mr. Matt Stevens. I think Matt is such a central character in the democratization of cycling, the opening up of cycling to the man. Our group's been on a Saturday morning in Dublin now. You know, nobody there knows who won Il Lombardy this year. They couldn't name the classics. They don't know the monuments. There's an entirely new demographic of cycling coming into the sport. And yesterday we had the Tyler Hamilton episode where we spoke about inflection points. The Tyler Hamilton episode was an inflection point in the growth of this podcast. I feel Matt Stevens's involvement, GCN, characters like him are an inflection point in bringing cycling to the masses. Before I jump into today's show, I'm fascinated with the thread that links top performers, those who succeed from those who don't. The single biggest indicator as to whether a roadman coaching client hits their goals or not, it's whether they use a power meter. As a coach, it gives me access to a world of data. Coaching without a power meter, it's like going out sailing without a compass. The brand I've used for a decade and the one I recommend to clients every day of the week is Stages. And I'm super happy to now have Stages as a show sponsor. It's water resistant, plus or minus 1.5% accuracy, 200 hours battery life off a single coin cell battery and handmade in Boulder, Colorado. I'm trusting Stages. I have for over a decade and the best in the world have trusted it, including five Tour de France victories and counting. If you head over to stagescycling.com and use code ROADMAN at checkout, that's going to get you 20% off full price parameters and factory install service. That's stagescycling.com and use the code ROADMAN at checkout. It's a fascinating conversation with a funny, articulate, amazing man. So please welcome back to the ROADMAN Cycling Podcast, Mr. Matt Stevens. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to a bit of a natter, mate. Yeah, I, fuck knows what direction this is going to go in, Matt. But I have a funny one to start. I was in, anyone who's not watching this on video and listened to the audio version, I have a similar enough hairstyle to Matt. And 
I was in, my my girlfriend talked me into not going to a barber, but going to an actual stylist to get my hair cut. So I'm sitting in the stylist getting my hair cut. You know, you get your, it's very posh. You get your coffee and you get your yeah. biscuits and all. You, you know, Matt, you know, a haircut like that. Uh, <laughs> you're getting your coffee and you're getting your biscuits. It's all very proper. And it, the guy comes over to me, he's like, do you have a picture of what you'd like? He's like, you know, curly hair is very specific. Do you have a picture? And I was like, oh, I didn't know I had to bring a picture. So he pulls out his phone and he's Googling curly curly hairstyles and he shows me a picture of Matt Stevens and he's like what do you think of that seriously that's so weird is it, is uh, it a cyclist or something I don't think so random I don't think so and I was just like do you know what I like Matt Stevens but I'm not sure I want I'm not sure I want that haircut bloody that's that's strange I don't know what that, I mean uh, I do like a nice hairdresser um, I, I do like I'd rather pay a little bit more and have have it, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know, have a nice experience, have a beer, have a coffee. <laughs> but I, I didn't know that I was used as an example uh, for, to, to other people. That's very, very strange. And I don't know how that has occurred. Unless I'm on this weird hairdressing database that I don't know about. <laughs> and, I, and I should be getting hairdresser database royalties. I'll look into, I'm just going to jot this down because I need to get, get my team onto this. See if I'm going to make a few quid out of it. But no, it's so weird. I don't, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> so, yeah, I was half thinking about that. I was like, if I go for this, do I have to go full stash? Do I have to go full Matt Stevens on this? Well, you're pretty much, you know, you're all, you've got a bit of a tash, tash on board, beard going, haven't you? Sort of a, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, grizzled look. Yeah, mine's more of a kind of vagabond, homeless, maybe he's a millionaire, but maybe he's homeless type look. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I almost didn't make this chat, Matt. I went out for, where you were talking about, you went for a ride this morning. I went out for like a two-hour gravel ride. And sure, gravel rides, like it's, you know, you go out on the road, you can be fairly sure it's two hours. My two-hour gravel ride was five and a half hours. And the lad I was with was coming apart bad in the last 60 minutes. And I had that, have you had this dilemma where I was like, do I push on and be that prick who leaves him on his own in the middle of a forest or do I wait? <laughs> what did you go for? I waited, I waited and I, oh, nor- I nursed him home. Yeah. yeah, it would be, I'm trying to think if I've left anybody behind in the past. I mean, I don't ride with people as much as I used to when I was properly racing, when I obviously used to go out and train regularly. Now I just train for fun. But um, yeah, fair play to you. I think I generally will nurse somebody home, but just tell them just to sit on, sit on tight as you can, and even push them on the climbs. I've done that before, but <laughs> carry them home. I've never left anybody out in the wilderness anywhere or even in the urban sprawl. I don't think I've ever done that to anybody, but I've had some mates who have suffered on some long rides. And and on, on the odd occasion, I've been the one that's suffering as well. So um, yeah, you don't want to be that guy because ultimately it could be turned on a sixpence and you could be the one left stranded. You don't want that to happen. So, it's yeah. a change in mindset though, isn't it? Like you were talking about from racing to, you know, post-racing. Because I remember racing, it was actually the same buddy. And I was doing a 20-minute threshold interval. And I was like 15 minutes into the threshold interval and we went around a roundabout and he was sitting on for the interval, flat road sitting on. And we went around a roundabout and he slid out on the roundabout and went down real heavy. And I looked down, I was like, no way am I starting this interval again. I was like, I'll be back for you in five minutes, mate. So I kept plowing, I had to plow, finish my interval, came back, sure he was gone. Turned out, he broke his collarbone, a passerby picked him up going, oh my God, that looked bad. He has, it was like 10 years ago, he hasn't let me forget it to this day. Bloody hell, mate. Oh, fair enough. I mean, uh, again, that, that gives a little bit of an insight into, I'm not, I'm not 
judging or it does, give, <laughs> it does give a little window into your mind at the time um i'll let, I'll let you uh, deal with that one but clearly you've he's not let you live it down which i kind of understand really but there you go as long as you got as long as it was a good quality interval and you were you benefited from that five minutes uh, Anthony, at some point yeah look it was invaluable like i couldn't have launched the podcast without that five minutes <laughs> Uh, Matt, talk to me about GCN. Uh, were you involved at the very start of GCN? Because my earliest memories of GCN are you being there. Yeah, um, I was... It launched, if I'm correct, I think it was January the 1st, 2013, or 31st of December 2012. Um, and I wasn't involved at that point, but it was only Dan Lloyd and a few of the guys from Shift Active Media and a chap called Simon Weir who, in, in a nutshell basically um, done very well in cycling media, set up several, I think he set up Cycling News back in the early days, uh, in, in the 90s, and then walked away from that to set up a different proposition, less uh, video proposition, well ahead of the curve. And YouTube at the time, I understand, were asking people to tender for particular channels with different strands of, of content, and, and he tended for a cycling um, channel and um, put, a lot, put a lot into it, won the funding, for, I think it was for a year. And it, but it's in the order of a million pounds, I think. It was serious money, a million dollars. It's ser- serious Because it hit the money. ground running. Yeah. I mean, it was, in the early days, it was, it was the, the key to it was having regular content at certain, certain days of the week. And I think that ultimately, as well as the vision behind it, because there was nothing else around, um, the idea was to have content that wasn't just cats falling over and stuff on YouTube. YouTube wanted to build channels that people would go to regularly and, and generate proper traffic and stuff. And that's what that's what they did. But I was just at the point where I was leaving the police at that, at that particular time and considering leaving the police. And I ended up going down, I think it was April or May, just before the Giro that year, to speak to Simon Weir and a couple of other people who, run, who were running the company. Because they, they, they knew about me. I'd heard about the channel. Um, Dan Lloyd had, at that point, ridden. I'd hired him. He was riding for Sigma Sports at the time. He's just coming off the the world tour level and had a year with us at Sigma where I was managing the Conti team, player manager kind of thing. And, and at one point we, I had Dan Lloyd, Tom Last and Simon Richardson all under my employ at Sigma Sports. I remember you had so, an Irish guy there as well, Pete Hawkins. Pete Hawkins, yeah. Uh, Pete, oh, lovely lad. Really, really nice lad, Pete. Um, yeah, really lovely lad. But so I... Yeah, went to see the guys at GCN and they said, yeah, we're, we're interested. We haven't got anything right now uh, and there's no full-time jobs. It's just freelance work. I said, okay. Anyway, a couple of, I think six weeks passed, we got in contact again uh, and they said, how about you come out to the Vuelta? This is after the tour, obviously. How about you come out to the Vuelta and we'll give you a trial? And I said, okay. And I was, I'd left the police at this point a couple of months earlier. I'd made the call to leave and try and um, work as a freelancer doing a bit of commentary, hosting events, live speaking, and making digital content. And was, it was that a bit of a, risk, a was really. that a, yeah, I was about to say, was that a bit of a leap for you then? Because you didn't have to... I, I know in yeah. niche cycling circles, you had a reputation. But, you know, outside yeah. of the very narrow niche, you didn't have the broad stream appeal that you have now. No, no, no not at all. It was... I was known, um, but, but the industry looked completely different then as well. It was, um, it was very, very different... But it was on the up in terms of public perception of the sport and, uh, and the, the British success, um, just from a British perspective, at the, Olympic, at the Olympic Games as well, London. Well, Team Sky changed a lot then, I think. Exactly, yeah. There was, you got, you got Brad, uh, Sky, Cav, the Cav effect, and also looking to the, 
to the success on the track as well. It was in the public consciousness and had been for a few years before that, actually, um, with Chris Hoy, etc. But But anyway, um, so it was building up and I went to Spain, did the whole... No, I did two weeks, I think, or 10 days, two weeks on, on the world. Really liked it. Came back. They liked the content that we'd made. And I think my first ever piece to camera was, it was the Vuelta and it was a stage where I asked the riders what was in their back pockets. It was the three, four. I remember piece. that. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, if you watch it back, the first one, Dan Lloyd's in vision and he said, welcome, Matt Stevens. You might know him from racing. He's in a new presenter. Matt, away you go. So I did this video. It was really simple. Uh, and that was it. And then, and then we, it just went from strength to strength. But at that time, it was only Simon Richardson, Tom Larston, me and Dan for the first couple of years, actually. There's no female presenters for a good couple of years. It just built and built and built. And initially, we were just riding our own bikes. So I bought a bike, um, one of my old race bikes from Sigma. We got a little, we got some kit from Santini, cask helmets. And then a year passed and then bike brands became interested. I mean, the first few visits to races, people it was really hard to get interviews. Um, it was difficult because... Teams were like, well, who are you? What? Because yeah. we don't, we're the only, apart from people from magazines and, and editorial websites and reporters, we were, the people were just like, who, we don't know who you are. So we, for the first year, we had to work really hard at getting traction just to get content at races, um, which was really interesting. But but we had a lot of fun in, in all seriousness. Although I, I left after four or five years, we had an absolute blast. And we we set out to make content that was, informative, fun, loose, and what we wanted to watch. Like it was just mates making content. And and even till the point I, I ended up leaving, people thought that we just did it as a hobby. And by then it was a multi-million pound business, but it didn't start off as that. It started off, it was a lot of graft, long days, a belief from Simon Weir and the rest of the team. And, and we wrote everything. Did, mean, you get a, did you get equity in the company? I did. But when I left, I, I, that was forsaken, basically. Okay. Um, so I don't own equity in the company anymore um, because I left um, at a time where they'll just been bought out by um, Discovery and stuff. So as part of my, I, I just decided uh, to, to sort of not, not, not cut my losses. It was just I wanted to make a fresh start. And I, there was a, a few differences of opinion. Um, so... I, I don't own any stake in the company at all. Differences in opinion as in difference in creative direction you wanted to go? No, not at all. Um, the creative side was, um, I, I loved. It was just, I had a difference of opinion in relation to um, my role within the company um, going forwards without going into too much detail. Um, so that was why I decided to, I wanted to do, basically I wanted to do other things as well as GCN, which I'd always done. Yeah. And and that wasn't, um, and I understand why they wanted to just have people working for GCN and nothing else. But I, I what was I then? 47. And I'd done a lot of things in life and I didn't want to be beholden just to one person or one company. Um, so I wanted to, and also wanted to do slightly different things editorially. It's just like GCN was amazing and I would have liked to have stayed. But I, if I'd have stayed, I wouldn't have been able to do other things which I wanted to do now. So now I create content for different brands I do esports stuff, still commentate as well. Uh, and I've got a lot more freedom. Um, and I just wanted that that freedom, which so I've got my own company now. Um, I produce content for different people now. It's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I remember looking when you left GCN, and I remember at the time thinking, oh, that seems a 
bit risky. And looking at that now, I'm just like, you were you were in second gear. It was a limitation on you that you didn't need. It seems like you're close. If, if I look at, you know, we don't know each other from Adam and I've only my only in, impressions I formed that you are in a media perspective. But my impression is that your mates would say who Matt Stevens actually is, is the Matt Stevens now versus as, as the Matt Stevens that was in the GCN mold. They seemed like they had a mold and they kind of want everyone to fit into this quite polished, quite politically correct very British mold. Whereas when I've watched you step outside that now in the Sigma Sport Cafe ride, which is absolutely brilliant, Matt. It's like, if anyone hasn't checked out the cafe ride, it's basically my favorite thing on the internet right now. It's brilliant stuff. Like, like some of them are just, to one with uh, Philippa York, uh, you know, talking about the transition from Robert Miller to Philippa York. It's like, you can't watch that and be anything but moved. It's It's a brilliant piece of sports journalism, videography, it's its brilliant. No, it's its very, I mean, uh, it was a bit of a bold move on, on my part, but I have in my life up to that point, um, I'd had several quite big resets professionally and personally. Uh, and I thought, well, what have I got to lose, to be perfectly honest? And I said that when I left the police, what have I got to lose? I'm always going to be employable doing something. And I don't want to end up at 70 years of age and think, I wish I'd taken that chance. So I'm I'm certainly not somebody who takes big risks, but uh, calculated risks, I'm all, I'm all for them. I'm, I'm all for feeling uncomfortable for a short period of time, getting comfortable, gaining new, uh, new expertise, new experiences, because life's short. And, I, and, I, and, I, and obviously, I'm, I'm working within the field of cycling, but I think it's quite conservative. So I, I, I see, I like being a little bit disruptive. And, 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 and in the early days, GCN was massively disruptive. No, there's nothing quite like it. And we had completely edit- editorial freedom. But as you quite rightly said, once you have big shareholders, different stakeholders who can play with the editorial style a little bit, things do change. Although, I, I, just to caveat that, um, one thing we did at GCN, which testament to management, they did trust a lot of the brands, we, well, all the brands we work with, we work with because we shared an integrity. And if a brand pushed too far from an editorial style, we said no. We either do it that our way or the deal's off. So we we held all the cards all the time. Although I think as it's got bigger and bigger and bigger, yeah, it's it's going to change. It's enormous. So it's it's a factory really putting out a, you know a lot of content. And I've almost taken a few steps backwards in terms of scale, but I've I've learned a lot from the people at GCN, the, the really good young editors, producers that I work with, Dan and Tom and Simon in particular as well, because we didn't come from that background. We're just road riders. <laughs> uh, but who loved it and passionate about it. And now I'm working with different people and especially the Sigma Sports team. They are really, really, they get, they get what I do um, and they let me be myself. And, and the way they stitch the, the cafe rides together is brilliant. It, it, we're really, really happy with the way that that stuff has evolved. But it's a, it's a, big, it's a, big, to say it's a big team effort. There's only four or five of us that, that make that, those videos. It's a really small, nimble team very much like in the early days of GCN, really small, agile team, low budget, but we can deliver uh, some pretty high-end content. 
I think it's a limitation maybe of YouTube and the style of content that GCN went with. It was massively disruptive and brilliant at the time, but it is quite a trivial interaction. You know, you're going on for a lot of how-to videos. How, how do I fix a puncture? Yes. How do I add a cleat? How do I... And, you know, not to diminish that, that has a place. But what you're doing now, it seems like GCN is going for the metric of wit, but there's another metric that everyone misses in this, and that's like depth. How deep is the interaction? Like your podcast yeah. with Magnus Baxted, you never could have had a chat like that on a platform like GCN on YouTube. It's it's too deep. It wouldn't hold yeah. attention that you'd have someone in the background looking at YouTube analytics saying, oh, somebody's dropped off here. It needs to be, you know, punchy or B-roll here. But because of that, it loses the depth of the conversation. Yeah, you, you're quite right. I do like, and, and very much like you, well, I guess like the podcast, the Sigma Sports Unplugged podcast came about through lockdown because we couldn't make any more cafe rides. So there's a year, a year and a half, and we didn't make any cafe rides. We had a few, quite a few planned. We only, the rhythm of those is only about six or eight a year because they, they take quite a lot of work. Um, we've got some more. We've got another one in the bag. There's some more planned. But the podcast came about because we couldn't make video content. It did so well. And they're quite quirky. We have a lot of fun, but... I like the tonal shift very much. It's like the cafe where we have, there's some really funny bits in it, like silly, fun, fun stuff. And then really cutting to some deep stuff that you can't really do. I couldn't really do on GCN. I know they've got the longer form documentaries now, but they're, they're great, but they're, they're different. And I, my background in the police, doing what I did in the police and my interest in cycling and people, I, I want to get to know the person. I want to dig beneath the surface of what we think we know about somebody and get to the, human i want to i want to hear people laugh i don't necessarily want to make them cry sometimes it that happens um but and and the podcast enables me to do that i just love conversation i think it's my i think it's my favorite thing i just love talking to people i had uh, uh sam buley on from social distance podcast he was on there a couple of weeks ago i mean sam were saying the real heroes of the pandemic were the lads who decided not to start a podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean the thing is we, we wanted to connect somehow because we were you know zooming all the time and and we needed to make some content so we thought let's everybody's everybody's doing a pod but let's any lad with a microphone was having a go on it yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and we've got it and it's it's um it's doing all right it's doing all right and um it's it's more than um paying for itself um there's a commercial angle to it now and and the sigma sports as a company is doing really well as well so and we've got a new uh head of uh creative marketing um who's hopefully, and who's really on side. My best, one of my best mates, Ian Whittingham, is, who runs the company, set it up from his bedroom in 1989. He's best man at my wedding and he, he loves it. And again, we've got a lot of editorial freedom. We pretty much do what we want. And, and obviously there's product placement in there, but we don't go on about it. If you want to buy a bike that I'm on, fine. I'm not going to force it down your throat. <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> yes. it, it's what Sigma's doing is brilliant. It's, it's the best in the game. It's absolutely like from the cafe ride to the podcast it's just it's subtle it's do you know what it's do you know what it is i always think if you look at a continuum of marketing on one side you have really tactical digital stuff where someone drops a cookie on you and they chase you around the internet and like chain reactions and stuff will do it where like here's a deal on an altegra and at the other side of it you have like i'm not sure if you've read the shoe dog the book how nike was founded you have i haven't actually no ah brilliant top three favorite books it's really well worth reading but you have a story of branding and nike is the 
ultimate branding story. Like, why do I wear Nike runners? Because they've story told to me over two decades. It's LeBron, it's Jordan. You know, they're not hitting me with a like, hey, 20% off Nike this month. It's just, it's what you guys are doing. It's storytelling. And that's what draws us back in. It's it's a slow burner. Yeah, it's 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 a really, really good point. And I think that's what they've somehow managed to create. And what we want to match is there's... They're not the cheapest shot by far. They don't go. It's not about the deals, although they do have deals. Um, but at the moment, um, there's no need to have any deals because because <laughs> the supply just no so supply. <laughs> so it's just if you get it, you pay double. You're like, whoa, I'm happy, you know. Um, but but no, they're it's it's doing really well, and it's the, it's the first like wearing kit. Wearing like the, the the thing that it's got to now is like wearing kit from a bike shop with Sigma Sport. It's like, it's not. It's not, I didn't think, oh, this isn't going to be really cool. But it kind of, not that it was cool, it just worked. And that they've been really careful with the branding. They've let us do what we wanted and it all kind of matches. And we're just going to, the next step, I think, I think hopefully you'll see that in the next 12, 12 months, two years, is we're going to take it up another level. So still do the same thing, but bigger is what the plan is. And what that looks like, I don't know, but bigger guests on the cafe ride because there's been a lot of eyeballs on there, especially the Pippa York and the Cavendish one, uh, and also the Bradley Wiggins one. Um, we're looking at elevating it. Um, just so not changing the tone, the feel, maybe the production value ever so slightly, although we you know, we do quite well in what we've got, but just getting more people to see it, because I think it deserves, without blowing smoke up my own ass, and the team, I think it deserves a bigger audience. So that's the next step, really. ever get frustrated that you can't watch certain live sports events because they aren't televised or available in your country? Or like what happened to me recently when I was bikepacking around Spain. I had to miss out on watching all my favourite shows because I couldn't access the streaming service because they were geo-blocked. Well, I want to introduce you to my solution. It's called NordVPN and it allows me to switch my virtual location to a country that is showing the sports event or show that I want to watch so I don't miss out. Not only that, but in this day and age, I'm getting increasingly more concerned about cybercrime with people stealing my private data and invading my privacy. Luckily, NordVPN is a one-stop shop for all things cybersecurity. It's incredibly easy to use with just one click and protect it. And you don't have to be a tech genius to use it. Honestly, my mom's using it and she can hardly use the remote control sometimes. With my NordVPN account, I can have six devices protected and I no longer have to worry about hackers, malicious sites and pop-ups. It's the price of a cup of coffee every month and it's a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to a vast amount of entertaining content from all over the world. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash roadman. That's nordvpn.com forward slash roadman to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months for free. And it's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. I'm going to put all the details for this offer into today's show notes. I was out riding earlier on and I was thinking about the shops like Sigma. You know, I obviously knew we were chatting today and on the back of that, I was thinking about Sigma. And you remember this, you're, you know, you're a little bit older than me, but you remember when you seen somebody out riding and they were wearing good kit and they looked like a bike rider, it meant they were a bike rider. You know, there was no shit guys who looked like good guys. 
now you're looking at guys coming past and you're like, whoa, he looks good. He looks good. And Ireland is, yeah. you know, it's like the UK, it's but smaller. So, you know, there's no good guys in Ireland who I don't know. You know, anyone who's a good bike rider, I know who they are by name. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you see someone going past, you're like, well, he looks world tour. How do I not know him? But he's probably doing like one watt per kilo. That's why I don't know him. But because of shops like Sigma, he just looks cool. And yeah. it's been brilliant. The whole industry has completely changed over the last decade. Yeah, and I think it's, there's been a shift. It's not one of these shifts. There's always going to be a little bit of ebb and flow, but I think in the UK and Ireland and elsewhere as well, um, it's becoming intrinsically woven into the fabric of what we do. More and more people ride bikes. We're not looked at as oddities. So even going back 22 years when I first joined the police in two, oh, 21 years in 2001, I'd still get piss taken out of me riding into work uh, at the CID <laughs> lad. We go, oh, fucking hell, Matt. I mean, they were great, but like, hey, Matt, oh, you're looking great in your light craze, that a banana in, you know, in your shorts. Oh, yeah, all right, lads. Three years later, they're coming up to my office at the public protection unit, the CID lads, and saying, so, Matt, can you get me a discount on the bike? Or can I borrow, have you got any spare kit I want to buy? Next thing, all of CID are riding. We've got a, a bike shed built onto the side of the police station. And that's just a microcosm of what's happening everywhere. People were riding, loving it quite late in life a lot of people as well and once you get bitten by the cycling bug and the health benefits it gives you primarily the buzz you get the friendships you form the liberating feeling it gives you you travel you see things in a different way once you've got that it won't let go so people are riding their bikes okay they might put them away in the winter a bit come out in the summer but people have got the bug are staying in the game and there's a lot of people in certain areas especially around sigma who've got pretty deep pockets they're they're, they're earning good money and rather than spending it on fast cars, they're buying fast bikes and, and fair play to them. And they're helping fuel our industry. It's creating jobs. It's, there's, a whole, there's all these economies of scale that, that knock-on effects. It was very easy several years ago to, to take the piss out of people because they've got, they're a little bit overweight perhaps and they're on a nice bike. But like, no, 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 fair. They should be congratulated because they're part of, these, of the family and, uh, and nobody should be excluded. Yeah, you know what? It's really the audience that we speak to on this podcast. The tagline for the podcast is how do we use cycling as a tool for health, happiness, and longevity? And, you know, obviously, I, I love the World Tour. I love watching San Remo. But the, yeah. the world just didn't need another podcast dissecting San Remo. You know, you watch San Remo. You watch the breakaway after the talks about San Remo. It's like, do I need another podcast analyzing San Remo the next day? It's like, also, I'm not Bradley Wiggins. Like, who wants to tune in and listen to me? But some of the stuff, like, that you touch on there is really central to what I try and do. Like I've studied extensively areas around the world called the blue zones. Have you heard of these? I haven't, no, no. Uh, blue zones are so fascinating if you get a chance to check them out. So the blue zones are areas where big data wise people live the longest. So they have the highest concentration of centurions, people that live beyond 100 years of age. So you're looking at areas like Okinawa and Japan and Sardinia and Italy. So there's been great studies carried out as to what is the common traits that links people in these different areas that are scattered around the world. Like, So what is the habits of people who live longer? Because, you know, there's a Seneca quote that I love and it's, uh, we don't define our future, but we define our habits and our habits define our future. So yeah. it's these habits that they have scattered in these blue zones. What are they? And one of them that is so central across all the different blue zones, it's collegiality. It's been around people. It's camaraderie. And we get so much of that in cycling. And I had it as a, you know, I played soccer as a kid and I tried to make it in pro up until college years. And there's nothing that beats the dressing room buzz and being around the lads. It keeps you so young. 
But when that stops for most people, they never get it again. But now cycling yeah. gives you that. Like you meet the lads at the cafe and you head off for, you know, anything between two and five hours and the destination doesn't matter. It's it's the stories and it's the crack. It's the, well, remember you slid out on the corner. Remember your man, you roared at the driver. It's, you know, it's the stuff along the way. Yeah, you, you are, you've, yeah, pretty much hit the nail on the head. And, and I think it, the conversation quite often when I'm doing a podcast or a cafe ride comes back to where we ride in the first place. And it's because... It was fun. It was a crack. I mean, funnest thing about racing for me was the laugh in the changing rooms before the race and, <laughs> and after the race, getting a, get, giving your number in and getting a cup of tea, a, a 10 or whatever. And next step from that was being pro or riding from a country and going all around the world with a group of lads and team and just having a laugh. It was just fun. And it still is now. I don't ride with as many people as quite as often, but my... You know, I, I'm, I go to a lot of races. I'm, I'm making videos. And I'm with people, and I'm having a laugh. And and, and quite often, they're, they're people from all different age groups. A lot of the team I work with at Sigma are a lot younger. And that's there's a certain vitality to that. They look at things differently, and it's really really important. Um, being around people, and, and, and that's why I love the podcast and I love the cafe rides. Is it's people, and we are social creatures. We thrive when we interact with each other. Um, and the world is a problematic place, but we almost got to take a step back and think just keep communicating this is what this is what makes us human <laughs> it's those human interactions that i find within the, the world of cycling it's it's just brilliant it's just a wonderful a wonderful place to be it's like do you remember you went away for the first time to a team abroad and you got your kit you know you got your your cool matching french kit or whatever it was yeah. but the coolest part about that i remember being stuck in this shitty little town pond out near la rochelle and i was out there you know making 50 quid a week and you're getting hammered. The races are so hard, like you're hanging on for dear life. But the best part of that was always like coming home the week for nationals because you get to strut around with, the, with your all, all your mates, but you had your cool French kit on. And it just shows you how important that, you know, community or that sort of, you know, what a lads type thing is. Uh, totally. I, I remember it um, when I was in France before I was pro with ACBB for three years. I did it. You know, I came back to ride the milk race and some of those... Um, uh, international races and uh you would you'd have, a, I'd have i think looking back i was only young 20 21 22 but i'd have a bit of a swagger on board <laughs> I, would, you know, I would thinking about but i felt it's like yeah i'm i'm riding for this you know acbb this french style got different kit than you and you, you know this and um i don't think i was cocky but i i felt there was a confidence that it gave me and also that it was cool you know I, I'd, I'd wanted to ride in france i was doing it and i was pretty decent bike rider and so yeah all those elements to it like going up to sign on as well like you'd have your different kick going up to sign on you know people are kind of looking at you going who's your man what's the story here yeah totally even if you if you were lucky enough to get a bit of casual wear and a nice tracksuit or something so you could really you could really flex a little bit back in the day have you you, this is the big question for anyone that comes on the podcast that's a bike rider have you ridden the ross yes one year 95 I was third overall, third on three stages, third in the points and third in the mountains. Oh, that's a big year. <laughs> so I was going, I was going strong, uh, but I, I didn't, I, on day one, I lost nine minutes in, I had a bad day. And in the, in the end, I was third at one minute and 15, just chipped away. But I love that race. Such a good laugh. Uh, yeah. It's so chaotic with the five-man teams. And, yeah. you know, nobody knows, especially the foreign teams coming across, because the amateur teams are, you know, you could be on one amateur team, but you're from a certain part of the 
country. So you've like 40 lads from that part of the country all riding for you if you have the jersey. And the sort of British teams are looking going like, why is there 40 lads riding through on the front of the bunch here? What's going on? Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a baptism. Say it was a bapt- I wrote it in 94 for the first time and everybody said, you're going to enjoy this. Uh, and it was like, whoa, this is, this is different. And there were lads, some lads on... I'm obviously in race bikes, but with trainers on. There was one or two guys with trainers on. Really? With straps. Yeah, back in 94. Uh, I rode for GB then. and I, I was just, one of my teammates was up there overall, so I didn't do anything in terms of placing. And then the following year, I rode for North Wirral Vela. We went over did a club team uh, with um, Chris Newton and a few other pretty decent riders. And I, that's when I got third. But um, but yeah, an interesting, so yeah, you you kind of got used to it. You just had to be quite patient and wait for there to be a natural selection. But on the flatter stages, uh, this enormous rampaging maelstrom of a peloton was something to behold. Um, yeah, it was. But I, I remember every single night, that, even the year I was third, two, two pints of Guinness a night as well, same with B&Bs, <laughs> meat and two veg, go down the local boozer, a couple of pints, nothing silly, a couple of pints, chat with the lads, next stage, and rained every day. But I, I, a race that, um, yeah, I could, I could probably go through every single stage and tell you what happened, to be honest with you, if you ask me. Have brilliant. You, I, I love the rest, yeah. Have you, got the, have you got the two points of Guinness in the evening? Have you ever got that wrong? I remember coming home, I was riding for a US Conti team and I came back to do the Ross and we we're talking about that swagger. I had the Billy Big Ball swagger around the Ross coming home in the American kit. And on the seventh stage, I went for two or three points of Guinness, which turned into like eight or nine points of Guinness. And oh my God, I don't saw him suffering the next day. I remember we were trying to lead out my sprinter for the sprint into Scaries. And I was dropped after like 5K. I was in the car's manager screaming at me saying, don't even think about not getting back on. And handing me bottles of Dior light to try and bring me around and stuff. And <laughs> uh, it was chronic. Have you had a day like that where you misjudged the night before? Yeah, but not in the rust. I, I was pretty disciplined. And it, that was the year that I was riding... I went to the World, World Road Championship, so it's, I was really focused. But then the, the, the time I missed, I've misjudged it a couple of times since then. 2006. <laughs> 2006, it was one of the premier calendar races in the UK up in the north, northeast. And incredibly, at stage one, finished stage one, I think I was seventh, just missed the, this group of six, and I was seventh in the next group, about a minute behind. I thought, that's all right. I'm the top 10 going at the final stage, just two long road stages, hilly. And it was the opening stage of the Tour de France. So I went to the pub, and next thing we know, it was three in the morning, staggering home. Uh, absolutely, I'd probably had about eight pints. That was just ridiculous. Me and my mate Mike. Um, and I was in the police then, but racing for fun, but still at a pretty decent level. Um, anyway, started the next day, dehydrated, hungover. And somehow, I don't know how we did it, but me and Mike got in the breakaway with Mark Lovett, who was a good rider at the He's time. He's a good rider, I remember him. Yeah, and we were away, and we had, we had the British team pursuit squad, so Chris Newton... Paul Manning and a few others, Halsey, chasing because they'd missed it. And they didn't catch us, and I won it overall. <laughs> but I was absolutely, for the first two hours, absolutely hanging. So I wouldn't advise any of your younger viewers to say, right, it's got to be eight pints next time I do a big race. But something happened, which I've never been able to replicate. <laughs> um, yeah, weird. But I had a great, a horrible suffering earlier on. Then towards the back end, flipping echoes, like 10 men, nuts. 
We were chatting about the Sigma Sports and uh, the GCN effect of creating content and just content for content and then driving massive awareness. How far do you think we are when I look at the cycling sponsorship model, especially when I look at the UK and you talked about Premier Calendar, kind of the debt of UK race and the slow debt over the last few years. Are they going to turn it on its head and go for more of the Sigma Sports model where you're using these teams as a vehicle for content creation? Do you see that as a viable path for them? Or what is the yeah, future for them? I, I think a, a lot of riders now, uh, as well as being in some of the Conti teams, I mean, I don't follow the British scene like I used to because I don't commentate on as many of the races. I used to commentate uh, for CycleVox, um, all the Premier Calendars, the Tour Series and stuff. So I was a bit more attuned, but I'm not. But I'm still aware of the fact that so many teams have folded. Obviously, COVID didn't help, but I think there's been a slow erosion. Then we lost the Tour of Yorkshire um, because there were several key races with so you've got the tour series the tour of yorkshire the tour of britain basically were what held and then the premier calendar series which were online or on tv as well so that basically was was the model and then obviously obviously you've got social media running alongside and and having run a team and gone to sponsors to try and justify their expenditure it's really really hard but that was best part of a decade ago the landscape's changed now and there's one good example uh that i can use you know, Adam Blythe rode for, um, was a pro. Madison Genesis had their big team. And then Madison stopped after seven or eight years in the sport, something like that. And they're one of the biggest teams. And had a pretty punchy budget. I don't know exactly what it was, but I think it was in the order of, you know, half a million, something okay. like that. It's pretty good for Conti. Like- so, 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 yeah. Um, and they paid riders proper money. Um, but then they stopped. Um, and then they, they're sponsoring now. Um, Adam Blythe, I think he's on X amount of days per year, but they get more value out of one high-profile individual on social media not racing than they did out of the team. And that's quite problematic. So quite often you'll get people within the industry having teams and really there's no marketing justification. It's just because they love the sport. And that's problematic in itself. It's it's philanthropy, not investing, really. Totally. but there's more and more teams now and, and in, individuals within teams who are helping the teams by by having a strong social media presence and doing their own thing as well as what the team's doing. And, and teams are having to be savvy in relation to how they market themselves. And a lot more is expected of the riders outside of just doing out of racing well. And you could argue that they're having a, a strong, positive social media presence is equally as important as getting placings in the big races domestically. Well, like you um, look at Sagan now, like... You know, he. Uh, it's funny when you hear people talking about Sagan being a, the three-time world champion who's a flop. You know, he almost never fulfilled that potential and kicked on to being one of the greatest ever, like we thought he was going to be. You know, obviously you can't deny the victories he's had, Tour of Flanders, three worlds. But really his value now is occasional podium places, but a massively powerful marketing tool. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, he's had a for various reasons this year, quite a few setbacks um, with injury and illness and stuff. So he, he's had a problematic year, but the fact he's gone over to, 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 to Total Energies, brought with him three or four riders and specialised, just shows, you know, he, I, I think I think he'll still have some big wins in him, but you, you could argue, especially the current crop of riders we have, the standard of the racing now is that Sagan's best rides are perhaps behind him um but he still carries a lot of value because he is a character because he's an individual he's different he does things differently whatever he does people are going to be interested in even if it's him 
you know, quitting a race or, or packing or, or struggling, he's going to be interested. So the brand's always there. So he, he still has um, a lot of clout, an enormous amount of clout because of the character that he is. But other riders don't seem to be figuring this out. Like, I'm looking at riders and going, you know, we obviously have those standout riders. We have our MVP, Wout van Aert, our Evan Pauls. You know, they're a different level. But then when you step down a rung, there's a chunk of riders who are fighting for contracts. They, like, are scrapping every time contract renewal is up. But if they just step a little bit to the side and say okay, if I can keep my performances at the same level where I'm still scrapping for contracts with everyone else, but I can add value, return on investment to sponsors, if I can become marketable, can I you know, have a TikTok account with 500,000 followers? But nobody seems to be thinking about this. It's, a, it's strange. Yeah, it, it, it's, I think there's some riders that do who, who are on social media all the time and get it, but some riders that aren't. And I guess because cycling is still quite traditional, in many, many ways, it's quite it's still quite conservative. Um, riders are having to find their own way. And even the market, I mean, teams are getting better at marketing riders, uh, but some teams aren't. They're, they're, they're kind of still in the Stone Age. So riders don't know their value and, and don't know, they, they're concentrated and consumed almost by, by performance um, and making sure they're doing well in bike races rather than trying to. And it's, it's weird. I, I feel quite strange talking about this because fundamentally a pro bike racer should be, should be somebody that just does well for the team and for themselves and and of of preeminence is the important is the all about the performance but now you, you quite rightly point out that if you're going to go to a team and they're going to invest in you they're investing in you as a bike rider and you as an ambassador for the brand because you've got to think uh, of who's and, buying these yeah. bikes you know it's the demographic yeah. you talked about the sigma sports demographic they don't care about who wins a kermess in belgium they don't even know what the word kermess means it, it totally that the, they want somebody that they can aspire to be like that's also like them and also that they they get they get their sense of humor they might have similar interests and and that's why again we come back to the human side and that's what I I, I try and do as best I can in in the interviews I do the podcasts and and, and the cafe rides and, and the other content around that is trying to um, is get this human side so you can make a bit little bit of a connection with people and it's it's quite interesting the stuff I've done with Zwift as well where I've spoke and spoken to. Uh, Jay Vine is a great example. Pat Jay, on the, Jay's, uh, we done a section last year, Life of a Neo Pro. So Jay was on the podcast four or five yeah, times he, last year. Yeah, but he's, he's, a, he's a lovely lad. I mean, um, and, and not super young either. I and mean, he's, he's, he's obviously he's, was, a, was a great rider before he won the Zwift Academy. But now he's like, you know, he's doing superb. But, um, but I did a, a load of um, Instagram lives with him on my own account, teed up by Zwift. So can you do this? And off the back of that, I know the Alpacin management team were like, well, this has been a really good, really good project because he's that the confidence that you instilled in him doing these, doing this stuff and encouraging him to, to be a little bit more on social media. He's really different. And he's, he's, he's even more of a valuable proposition. I'm not saying that it was just down to me, but it gave him a little bit of a step up in, because he was very, again, not super polished, but now he's had to step up, I guess, because he's a relatively high-profile rider now, and he's probably their only proper GC rider in that in that te- in that team. But he's a lovely lad, and um, uh, it is important that if you if you can back up good results and be an integrally important part of the team, and also have a good social media presence, um, but not not even such a social media presence, just be good in, in front of cameras, say the right things, look good. You know, it's it's massively important. But you know, Jay's a smart 
guy as well and he, he's is, interesting yes. to chat to you know when you when you get a for a long time we had those sort of you know british cycling and sky telling riders to give the key messages and in interviews and you know i when i think about it i think a wiggins through that 2012 campaign when he won the tour de france and his interviews with the dauphine and stuff and they're nonsense like you know no one wants oh, yeah. to hear that shit like Oh no! And he uh, admits that now it was like a, it was there was you couldn't get anything. The they're sound bites. They're shit sound bites. Like for cycling oh, news, yeah, we're, we're going through the process, we're ticking boxes, and I mean, I'm that's we'll do everything is we do everything we can to be as good as we can for <laughs> July, and it's like yeah. well, but I mean, it, it was it was I, I, I guess it's fine, but in terms of actually, it was dull, dull as dishwater. And um, I've done a, fair, a little bit of work with Ineos as well in relation to trying to instill a little bit of fun into into the content that they're making. And I think that's what I bring to different brands is is giving people, the brands, the confidence to just relax. <laughs> Seriously? You want to, so you want me to do this? Fine. Well, I'm not going to do that because that, I wouldn't want to, first, I wouldn't want to watch it. Secondly, it's going to diminish the relationship that we've got. And second, and thirdly, listen to what I've got to say because I've done this for the last decade and I'm pretty good at it. Just relax. Get Eddie Dunbar on camera. Eddie's gas. Yeah, yeah, I've I've done a couple of interviews with Eddie. He's a really nice lad, isn't he? He's really, really nice. He's flying at the moment, isn't he? He's really good. So Eddie was like, have you seen the pictures of Eddie as a kid racing in Ireland? Uh, he, I haven't actually. Uh, they're so funny. You should Google a few pictures of him. Like the, he was tiny, and I, I guess he had a hand-me-down bike. So the bike was like four or five sizes too big for him, and they're absolutely comical. There's one picture of him. He was just a freak, strong at every age group. But there's one picture of him, and the first picture is him like coming in solo. Next picture is him attempting to put the hands up. Next picture is him losing it. Next picture of him's on the ground. It's absolute gold. Well, it must be under 14s or under 15s. Uh, Matt, to finish up, what's the next 12 months look like for you? Highlights that you're really excited about? Um, getting back into... There's a few things that I've got uh, bubbling away in the background that I can't talk about, but uh, I think it's doing what I'm doing, but bigger, really, is is is, is what I want to do. Specifically, I, I do a lot of work for RCS, the people that run the Giro. So I'm off to the Giro d'Italia on site to commentate with Ned Bolting. I'm off to... The, the tour of Sicily as well in a couple of weeks. Got a lot of stuff planned with Sigma Sports. So there's more cafe rides planned um, and doing a lot of work for a company called LeBlanc as well. Uh, what, what's Wiggins. LeBlanc? So LeBlanc is, it's, um, how can I explain it? It's high. It's a high-end cycling experience. So basically it's bringing together cuisine, so Michelin-starred chefs and riding in nice locations. Um, Sounds and, expensive. And it, it is. It's expensive. It's a, it's a particular. It's, it is very expensive. Make no bones about it. It's for people who with a reasonably deep pockets, but who want to go for rides with people like Eddie Merckx, Johan Museo, Bradley Wiggins, um, Matt Stevens, and uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a few and a few other names. It's been out. Say Greg Lamond, Cavan, Mark Cavendish, Amazing. in in, in, in Ibiza, um, where it's Scotland, um, the Ardennes, wherever. So that's quite a new project. A friend of mine who I raced with back in the day set that up. And then Eurosport commentary. So I've got a, quite a lot of Eurosport commentary coming up. Uh, and stuff for Zwift. I'm going to think I'm going to be doing some more stuff with Jay Vine, looking at his life, um, esports stuff later in the year when that kicks off. So it's, it's really broad and varied. So it's going to be a continuation of what I'm already doing. But I think, fingers crossed, you'll see me do stuff that I'm already doing, but hopefully bigger and better is the plan. Uh, without losing its heart is what, what I hope to do in the next 12 months, yeah. Ma, thanks for joining me on the Roadman podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.